Welcome to the Red Light Report, your number one source for all things red light therapy, where you will learn how to optimize your health, wellness, and longevity with the power of photobiomodulation. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Belkowski. All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of the Red Light Report. Today's guest, I first came across last year sometime. Um, he made a video on Instagram that went viral, and he was talking about uh, COVID-19 vaccinations at the time. And when I heard him speak about it in a time of euphoria, in a time of panic and fear, he was speaking from a place of education and knowledge and was very straightforward with his thoughts on the vaccination, uh, which he may be able to share after this introduction. So I have some great respect for his knowledge and education in that area. At that time, of course, I didn't have this podcast. So starting this podcast, I knew that Dr. Leland Stillman had to be one of my first uh, guests on the Red Light Report. Dr. Stillman became a doctor to help achieve their highest potential. He majored in environmental health at Connecticut College, completed medical school at the University of Virginia, and specialized in internal medicine at the Maine Medical Center and became board certified by the American Board of Internal Medicine. He's also the author of a handful of research publications. So without further ado, Dr. Stillman, welcome to the Red Light Report. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. So let's start with that Instagram video that went viral, which is relatively difficult to find now. I imagine it's been taken down or banned or shunned by those that be. Uh, but just walk us through or give us a synopsis of what that was all about and what your thoughts are on the COVID vaccine. Yeah, definitely. So last fall, I was wrapping up a contract in Northern Minnesota, working in a small rural hospital where I had been told that we were going to be seeing a thousand deaths a day in the state uh, around midsummer. Well, in the fall, I had only seen like three or four cases of COVID. So I knew that something was wrong because when you look at mortality from pandemics that are of any significance, you see significant spikes in mortality, not just in one place or in a couple of places, you see them in a lot of places. I was commuting to Minnesota at the time and I was living in Virginia and the health commissioner of Virginia, Norman Oliver, he came out and said that he would consider mandating that Virginians get the COVID-19 vaccine. Now, there's a lot of reasons to, quite frankly, laugh at vaccination for sudden transient pandemics. Number one, we've never done it successfully, despite having had multiple opportunities, the Asian flu, the Hong Kong flu, the H1N1 flu, and now, of course, COVID. And you know, people may want to stop and say, well, hang on a minute. What about the current vaccines? Aren't they safe and effective? Well, you know, they're safe and effective, but we've also got a lot of adverse events that have been reported. And they're often in young people who are, say, dying of strokes. So I get that you want to reduce morbidity and mortality in those at risk of COVID-19. You have to ask yourself how many strokes in 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, heart attacks, ER visits. I mean, I've had patients who are personally very affected by it. Some so affected that they're refusing to get their second shot. Some who've been worried about their ability to continue to work. You know, people may have seen Eric Clapton and what he said about the shot. He said he, he never should have gotten it. You know, he, I'm assuming he'd rather die than lose his ability to play guitar, right? 
So you have to keep all that in mind, right? These are not anything that can be a medicine can be a poison. It's a simple fact. And so people need to realize this and they need to understand that like not all that, that glitters is gold. This idea that we are going to roll this out and make it safe and effective and really radically reduce mortality. There's a lot of holes in that argument. There's a lot of really perfectly reasonable scientists who are skeptical of the benefits of this vaccine. I thought for that reason that it was ridiculous to mandate it because I'm not about to get between anybody and their doctor when it comes to the care that they want, right? You know, I'm not going to like run around town telling people to stop getting breast implants or doing bariatric surgery or getting liposuction or doing fillers, right? But the reality is like, you got to be on board with and okay with what people are going to do to you. And so I, I made a, a statement at a public rally against forced vaccination. The interview I ended up giving was for a company or a website called lifesitenews.com. It's a pro-life Catholic website. And it ended up going viral because people, the message I shared just really resonated with people. And if people want to watch that, they just need to put my name into rumble.com because it'll probably come up. I mean, that whole site ended up getting banned by Facebook, banned by YouTube. I've been pretty quiet on my social media because I just didn't feel like getting banned. I didn't see any point. And at this point, I mean, if you can't smell the lies, you're just really not paying attention. So I just kind of got tired of trying to like wake people up. Um, not to mention I've been really busy with my practice and now I'm you know, moving with Florida to escape the insanity that has engulfed my home state of Virginia. So yeah, that's what I did with, with that. As far as the COVID vaccine, you know, I've seen multiple patients hurt. Uh, I've had multiple patients say I'm not getting the second dose. And the reality is like, I have really a lot of connections all over the country because I've practiced as a traveling doctor. And when you look at the data, I mean, COVID is, is not what it was if it was ever anything more than just a bad cold in some places. I'm not trying to minimize, you know, the horror that went on in places like New York. I have friends who live and work in New York as hospitalists. I have friends who, you know, were working in New Jersey at the time. But the reality is, you know, you look at actual age population adjusted mortality for the United States and the world for 2020, and it's actually not that different from what you might have expected. In fact, there's some countries where age and population adjusted mortality has declined. So the greatest pandemic in recent history, and it, it declined, you know, give me a break. This doesn't make any sense. And so, you know, I respect the therapeutic decisions of some people to get vaccinated, but th this whole thing just reeks of corruption and politics. And when you mix politics and medicine, you know, patients don't come first anymore. So I'm not okay with that. And that's why I took a stand against the vaccine. I did that on my interview with Ben Greenfield and, you know, been vocal about that elsewhere. I'm not getting it, not telling my patients to get it. And the other thing about transient pandemics is they all last for 12 to 18 months and then they stop. You know, why would I assume that this one's gonna be any different? You know, has, has virology magically changed overnight so that suddenly an, a vaccine is indicated? Not to mention the fact that, you know, I mean, the, the, his, the track record for these rushed to market vaccines is, is pretty bad. You know, we stopped vaccinating for swine flu during the swine flu pandemic in 1976 after 400 people got Guillain-Barre syndrome and, you know, died or were permanently disabled from that. I happen to have a patient who is the daughter of one of those people. She very clearly remembers her mother being crippled by this so-called therapeutic. So you want to tell those people to uh, force vaccinate, you better be willing to pry them off their front porches and take their guns out of their hands because they're not going to go lightly. So with all of that being said, and I don't want this to turn into a COVID-19 uh, podcast, it, yeah. but what do you foresee the fallout being from the vaccinations being what's going to happen or what do you think is going to happen with those who have taken it? And we're reaching that, you know, like you said, that uh, 15 to 18 month mark or so. So we're coming up on the end of the pandemic, right? So what's the fallout 
Or do you think there's going to be any health ramifications from these uh, rushed out vaccinations? Well, I can't vaccines. speak to that, right? And that's the, the thing about complex systems, which is a, a passion of mine. I, I love thinking about complex systems and complexity theory because it, it so describes what I do uh, in working with people's immune systems and their bodies and their physiology. I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe it'll be mostly harmless. Maybe it'll kill a certain number of people. Maybe it'll disable a certain number of people. We have no idea. You know, the idea that it's like safe and effective, you know, well, you know, I mean, so is Tylenol, but people die of that. I just don't know. I don't know enough about it. And I don't trust any of the data that people are handing me. What I know is that I run a very small boutique practice and I'm working with, you know, a few dozen people at a time at most. And I've had multiple people report adverse events to the vaccine. And guess what? Probably 80% of my patients will never get this vaccine, no matter what happens. So if, you know, do the math, right? If I have two or three patients who have an adverse reaction to the vaccine and only 10 to 15 of my patients are getting vaccinated, then that's a really high adverse events ratio. And I'm not counting, by the way, the people who were, you know, laid out for a day and were, you know, tired, sluggish and whatever, you know, I don't even know what that number would be. I'm talking about people who went to the ER, people who sought my care, who were concerned about loss of neurological function in their body, not being able to work, not being able to, to do things that they'd taken for granted just days before, and who were concerned about potentially getting worse if they got a second shot. So anyway, gotcha. that's all I can that really say sense. about that. Understood. And so let's move on to light since yeah. that's what we're, uh, this podcast is about. So especially with your rigorous education and uh, educational background, what did you learn about light in medical school compared to what you know about light now? And secondly, how did you go about learning about light? Like who, who did you learn, learn from? What were your mentors and, and so forth? I learned nothing about light in medical school. I can't think of a single application off the top of my head for light in modern medicine that I was exposed to in my medical school or in my conventional training. I think I'd heard maybe about UV light. I knew UV light made vitamin D in the skin, but I mean, who doesn't know that? And I knew that you could use a UVB lamp in order to do that. And that people who had seasonal affective disorder might benefit from bright light therapy, but I had no idea how any of it worked or all the biochemical cascades, or, I mean, I knew nothing of that stuff, right? I got interested in it because I was working at a destination wellness center in Tampa, Florida that catered to people who had been diagnosed with mold and Lyme disease, which in many cases, I don't actually think have anything to do with either of those agents for the record. And there were a lot of young tech addicted people in this clinic who were not responding to what was working for older patients who were not tech addicted, tech savvy you know, it was funny. I'll never forget this guy who worked on like a ranch in New Mexico. And he came in almost like with these Parkinsonistic symptoms, like really slow moving, shuffling gait, slow to move, but very sharp, very smart guy. And after a couple of weeks, he was moving faster. He was feeling better. He had more energy, right? I'll never forget this guy sort of blossoming despite his advanced age. And then I remember these young kids who were there who were in their 20s or even their teens who'd been under treatment for weeks or months. Their families may have spent thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars on their care, and they weren't getting better. And I was so discouraged by this because I really felt like for the amount of money they were spending, they needed to get a better value, or they at least needed to be ex have it explained to them that, that this might not work for them, which I didn't feel was adequately being explained, but that's a whole other story. 
And I'm not trying to like denigrate any practitioners who do that. I just don't think that they have the perspective that I have because what ended up happening was when you listen to those patients, they're obsessed with getting better. It's literally the only thing that they have to do in life is to get better. And they know that the conventional stuff at the hospital is not going to work for them because they've already tried it and it's already failed. So they're looking at every other possible therapy that they can find. I mean, I know patients who've traveled to Germany to get therapeutic hyperthermia. I know patients who've had very complex dental procedures to take all of the metal amalgams out of their head, plus pins and whatever. I know people who've, you know, done their own sort of do-it-yourself fecal transplants at home, coffee enemas, like sauna, ice bathing. I mean, pretty crazy out there, extreme stuff. And one of them turned me on to the work of this guy named Jack Cruz. And he said, I think this guy has what we're missing at this clinic. And I looked into Dr. Cruz's work at the same time I was exiting this clinic because I wasn't happy with the results we were getting. And I wanted to go somewhere else and do something that I was more comfortable with really. And I started working and, and, or really reading Jack's work, um, Dr. Cruz's work very intensively, very in depth. And he takes a very hard line on light. He says, look, if you're not paying attention to your light environment, you're really not going to make any progress. And it may have nothing to do with the food that you're eating. And I began to really look into the research on this. And aside from reading Dr. Cruz's blog posts, I read his book. I then branched out and read a bunch of books that he recommended. And then finally, I got into John Ock's work, Health and Light. I got into Joel Lieberman's work. I think it's Light Medicine of the Future. I think you got it on the shelf back yeah, there. Back there. <laughs> um, I ended up reading uh, Red Light Therapy by Ari Witten. But the real Bible for me actually became the influence of ocular light perception on metabolism in man and in animal by a German ophthalmologist named Fritz Hallwich published. Yeah, literally in the just bought that on Amazon. Yeah. It's 19, 1976. Yeah. You have to pay like 150 bucks to Amazon to buy it because it's such an old book. It's been out of print for so long, but it is so packed with information. Even though it was published in the 1970s, it is the single best resource I have for light. If I could only keep one of the books that I have on light, in my library, it would be that one because it's so detailed. And he goes into stuff that people today don't sometimes don't appreciate. And people today get lost in like clinical research data where they're like, oh, well, we did all these studies with red light therapy. And we found obviously that has a place, right? But what I loved about Hallwich's work is he would catalog all these things like, you know, did you know that the size of a deer's antlers have to do with the number of sunny days? in the spring leading up to the season when the antlers reach their peak maturity. Hey there, guys. So I know you're excited to learn about red light therapy, but I'm betting that you're also interested in finding a high-quality red light therapy device. Well, look no further than my company, BioLite. But don't take my word for it. Listen to the thousands of customers that have come before you and have chosen BioLite because of its unprecedented combination of high light power, low EMF emission, and low light flicker. So you're not only getting the most effective treatment option, but the safest as well. And there's many sizes to choose from. There's handheld devices, tabletop models, and even full body panels. So there's definitely a size to match your lifestyle and health and wellness goals. As an added bonus, you can claim a $100 value gift at checkout when you use coupon code REDLIGHTPODCAST. Just go to www.biolight.shop, choose whichever device is going to match your health and wellness needs, and use coupon code REDLIGHTPODCAST to claim your $100 gift. Again, that's www.biolight.shop. And, you know, things like mating are driven by cycles of light. 
number of offspring. And when you get into the like Ott's work, health and light, you know, he'll, he'll tell you that animal breeders have known for a long time that you can change the sex ratio of, of your, of your animals by changing the light balance. When you read things like that, it's just it, the implications to anyone with a brain are stunning. I mean, what if the light bulbs in your bedroom could change the gender of your child? That is a mind bending proposition. Now, who knows what the effect size is or might be, because I have no evidence to suggest this is so. I just have some animal data that I'm not even that familiar with, quite frankly. But I got into that. I read all those studies and I just started, the more I read, the more clear it became that this was actually pretty simple. We need a naturalistic lighting environment. And when we live in an unnatural lighting environment, it's just as hazardous to our health as if we're smoking or drinking to excess or eating an imbalanced diet or not exercising or thinking bad negative thoughts or doing a job that we hate. I mean, all these things that people know are unhealthy are in many ways uh, just as bad as having the wrong light bulbs in your you know, bathroom vanity light fixture. And so that was how I started to learn about it. And then I just started to practice with, with my patients and just started hearing these amazing stories, you know, people who'd had sleep problems for years, suddenly being able to go to sleep, people who had weird ocular diseases that their ophthalmologist couldn't even give them a diagnosis for. They would disappear because they changed their light environment and the light coming out of their screen. People who were dealing with anxiety, depression, hormonal imbalances, their inability to control their appetite, constant cravings for carbohydrates, fats, proteins, it almost didn't matter. Some of it didn't make sense to me, but quite frankly, I'm the kind of doctor who doesn't care necessarily about all the details of how it works. I just care about getting the results for the patient. So that was basically how I started to learn about light. And I, I really built from all that basic science literature into how I treat my patients. And then finally, I started to getting into with patients, how to use devices like you sell in order to help them optimize their wellness and fitting those into their wellness programs. Right. So before we start getting into, you know, different products or whatnot, like you were alluding to, you are changing your patient's environments, which has a lot to do with the mitochondria, of course, with, with light. But what, what does that look like when a patient comes in? How do you assess or analyze their environment? And then how do you offer up suggestions to optimize their environment, whether it be light or otherwise? That's a great question because the real problem with the modern world, right? Mm -hmm is that there's so many variables that can be screwing up somebody's health. I mean, I've seen the weirdest stuff just by going into people's houses and doing inspections. Like I remember going to someone's house and looking for EMF and I found that they had like a 1200 nanotesla field, which is an artificial magnetic field that was coming off of an alarm clock next to their bed. And they had no idea. Unplug the alarm clock, totally goes away. Now we unplug the alarm clock and guess what? Her sleep did not improve, but she didn't have sleep problems, but I don't know what other effect it was having on her. And the weird thing is, is that people will manifest different diseases in response to different energies in their environment, be they photonic, be they electromagnetic, a la electrical fields, magnetic fields. They may change with season. You know, they may change with orientation of the body. I mean, there's just too many variables here for us to really be able to predict. And that's why I just laugh at all these people who are like, oh, we did a case control study where people were exposed to this field or that field. And it's not that these aren't helpful to establish or substantiate that there are biological effects of energies or frequencies in the environment, again, be they light or electromagnetic radiations of other kinds, but people manifest diseases differently. And so you shouldn't expect, for example, necessarily to see 
a big shift in like brain cancer incidents with cell phones. There is some compelling data for that with, with cell phone use, but it's a kind of all over the place. But the thing is, is like when you get people to stop using their cell phones so much, or you, you get them to turn off their Wi-Fi router at night or switch to like a low EMF Wi-Fi router, which is what I now have actually. Um, when you do that, they see therapeutic benefits. So, you know, what do I care? I care about getting the results. I want them to feel better. If getting them to eliminate their Wi-Fi eliminates their headaches, then I've done my job. Yeah, definitely. That kind of takes me back to when I was in physical therapy school, we actually had a, a conversation on the placebo effect and mm-hmm. it was around ultrasound because yeah. back in the seventies and eighties, if you have lower back pain, they're going to ultrasound it. But since then, of course, the research has come out and shown that's not the case. It's actually yeah, not right. really doing anything. Right. Um, so don't waste your time. But right. we had this conversation where if a patient requests it, because let's say they're providing a physician says or prescribes ultrasound, if they ask for it, the patient, you provide it knowing it's really not doing anything, but they get better, then doesn't matter. Is it morally incorrect to give someone a placebo treatment if they get better? And clearly your stance is as long as the patient gets better, that's ultimately what matters, regardless if it's placebo or not. People don't realize how powerful their minds are. They have this conceit that they're in control and they're not. And that's one of the actually things that really bothers me about COVID is that when you tell people that there's something really dangerous in their environment, and if they develop any one of a laundry list of symptoms, then they may have the killer virus that will end their life. You can make them sicker than they otherwise would be. You can induce this panic and this fear and this sympathetic nervous system response that just creates this terrible maelstrom of deterioration in their mental and then physical state. And that's the crazy thing about, you know, talking to your patients, because if you're really being brutally honest with them, you really could tell them, we have no idea how much of what we're doing is the placebo effect. doesn't matter if it's drugs, doesn't matter if it's surgeries, doesn't matter if it's PT, doesn't matter if it's ultrasound, red light therapy, whatever. We have no idea. But at the end of the day, your job is to get the patient better. And one of the things that struck me in the course of my practice is the patients who come in who are most optimistic and have the most positive mindset tell me that they get the best results. Now, is that because they are telling me that they're getting great results because they just happen to have a positive mentality? I have no idea, but they also happen to be happier. And it's the people who come in with the attitude of like the, it's, I call it like the Eeyore attitude. It's like, oh, I bet this won't work. Oh, I guess we'll just try this because it's the next thing on the list. Oh, I'm broken. Oh, I can't be fixed. Especially the people who say like, I have this, I have anxiety, I have sciatica. I have low back pain. It's like they have it. It's like this thing that they are holding on to. And that's why I don't really talk to patients about diagnoses anymore. I talk to them about symptoms that they're having. And I want them to be very specific. I want to get to the bottom of, okay, well, you know, what could be driving this? And I don't look at it as like a cause of a disease so much as I do. This is a constellation of factors in the environment that's making the patient sick. And that's really the bear of dealing with the modern environment is there's so many variables that you can't sense. So let's say that I'm like talking to a patient, like, let's say that my initial visit is like 90 minutes, right? So I have 90 minutes to like cover everything in their environment. And, you know, they tell me that they're living with artificial light at night and they have no idea what their EMF environment is and they have no idea what their air quality is and they have no idea what their water quality is. It just comes out of the refrigerator filter, right? And they tell me, my favorite is when they're like, oh, I eat a lot of this. 
Right. And then we get a food journal on them and they're like, I'm like, okay, you told me you eat a lot of fish, but you eat catfish once every week. So you do it four times a month. I'm like, yeah, it's a lot. And I'm like, no, no, no. Like if you live at the beach and have fish every day, it's a lot. The record for fish consumption in my practice is one pound a day. That person's mercury level was about 12 micrograms per deciliter. Maybe it was a liter. I can't remember the units. It was a lot. Told him to stop eating that and all his mercury toxicity symptoms went away. Anyway, you just don't know what you're getting into or what in the environment is problematic. And that's why it takes me a lot of time. I kind of joke with people that I can reinvent their life in 12 hours if they let me do all of the talking because that's how long it takes me to really explain to them, okay, here's what's in your environment. And then they're going to have to take all that information. They have to go into their environment. They're going to have to measure all this stuff. I teach them how to measure their own air quality. I teach them what they need to do in order to fix their air quality. I teach them what they need to do in order to make sure that their water is not poisoning them, that their food is not, is not poisoning them or imbalancing their nutrition or creating nutritional deficiencies. I teach them how to you know, mitigate EMF, at least the basics and fundamentals. Because sometimes you'll be working with somebody and you won't get around to dealing with their EMF environment until three, four, five months into working with them because all this other stuff may come up. Well, if you're doing that, right, and then all of a sudden you find that they're living or sleeping in some massive electrical or magnetic field, and you mitigate that by changing something, flipping off a breaker, unplugging an appliance, you name it, right? Well, wow, all of a sudden you made massive progress, but you felt like up until that moment, you were just wasting your time. You just don't know what's in the environment. And that's why you got to take a comprehensive, holistic, uh, nuts and bolts, but also practical and pragmatic approach to examining the total environment. And that's why I gravitated towards balanced protocol, which is the method that I use now by Dr. Anthony G. Beck, because it's a very comprehensive way of assessing the environment that's reasonable for anybody to do. So just let's go into the, uh, the balanced protocol a little bit. Can you give us a, a quick synopsis of what that is and what that entails? Yeah, basically. So, so Dr. Beck just, you know, just like I did, he, he arrived at the conclusion although a lot earlier than me, cause he's, you know, he's about 17 years, my senior, he arrived at the conclusion that if you miss anything in your environment, that's a big enough factor, you're going to make mistakes. You're not going to get patients better. And the greatest value that you can provide them is teaching them how to create a bulletproof environment for their health. And so you've got to be comprehensive. And he divides the environment into six different factors, air, water, light, sound, EMF, and food. So the protocol walks you through each one of those factors. You go over breathing mechanics. You go over air quality and air quality concerns. You go over water quality, how to structure water, how to remineralize water, what light you, know, you need to use, light therapy, options, devices, um, he doesn't get into dosing in that course. That's something I get into when I work with people one-on-one. He gets into you know how to use blue blockers, which ones you need, why. He gets into sound, which is blew my mind. He was the first doctor I'd ever heard about talking about how sound could affect health, and it just amazed me how much I didn't hadn't appreciated this when I'd covered everything else in so, so much detail, so to speak. But sound, how it affects your mood, how it affects your physiology. I mean, people don't realize like living underneath a jet port or jet airway runway, all that sonic boom that you may be getting from hypersonic aircraft coming off of it, if it's a military installation, because commercial jets don't fly supersonic, it can actually predispose you to heart disease and lots of other degenerative illnesses. I mean, I had no idea that this was going on, right? They didn't teach me that in med school. And then EMF, 
you know, what the fields are, how to measure them, what meters to get, how to use them, how to quantify, and then how to mitigate as well, which is really helpful because you got to learn how to mitigate if you're going to measure. And then food, really critical dietary information, advice, quantification, teaching people what really matters from a pragmatic perspective about what they should eat and how they should understand their, really their uh, nutritional physiology. Pretty uh, holistic, I would say. Pretty well-rounded. <laughs> it's like 50 hours and it's, I mean, there's no element in your environment that doesn't fit into one of those buckets. Yeah. Essentially, it's all frequencies, right? Affecting you in some way or another. Everything is, if you, what is that Tesla quote, right? If you want to really understand the secrets of the universe, think in terms of energy, frequency, and vibration. Nikola Tesla. Beck would tell you the same thing. Well, I live out here in the boonies between a river and the mountains. And in the morning, I'm listening to a Beethoven, Mozart, or Johann Sebastian Bach. So I think I've got my sound uh, environment locked and loaded at least. Good for you. And you're getting some nice forest bathing. You're listening to the sounds of the babbling brooks and streams because you got some beautiful water out there. Yes, sir. Every morning facing east, watching the sunrise, grounding with my uh, puppy German Shepherd. So we're getting some good um, near infrared and red light in the morning and those free electrons from the earth. So yeah, it's a, it's a nice little morning routine, shall we say. That's great. But let's circle back to the light environment, because for the environment, a lot of that has to do with inside the house, because that's where people, if they're not at work or, right. or traveling in the cars, that's where, where they are. Right. And so there's a 2014 uh, study out of Sweden that looked uh -huh. at 30,000 women over 20 years. Yep. And the conclusion of the study was that low levels of sun exposure were as detrimental to your health as being a cigarette smoker. Because they found that the woman that spent the lowest amount or had the lowest amount of sun exposure uh, had a twofold higher uh, rate of death compared to the woman with the most amount of sun exposure. So my question to you would be, do you ever prescribe or suggest to your patients to get sun exposure or this concept of heliotherapy? So the answer is yes. There is a healthy level of sun exposure for all people. And we just have to think about, you know, our natural relationship with the sun. People who live in higher latitudes tend to have paler skin. The color of their skin pigmentation changes over time. In a state of nature, we're eating a very nutrient-dense diet. We're constantly connected to the earth from which we get free electrons. We're eating a very healthy diet that helps us mitigate sun damage and sun exposure. And some of my favorite and albeit anecdotal data for the real effects of, of sunlight on health is to go back and look at historical photographs because it's remarkable the lack of moles and, and blemishes and, and skin damage that you see in sometimes in historical photographs. That's arguably confounded by the fact that, hey, photography's come a long way. You know, Matthew Brady back in the 1850s did not have you know, a high definition camera with an 8X zoom on his, you know, smartphone in his pocket, right? But still, it's really fascinating to think about this. You know, nobody ever told those people to avoid the sun for fear of melanoma, you know, and yet many of them live long and healthy lives. And that melanoma in Southern Sweden trial, which is the study you're, you're talking about, MISS for short, found exactly what you're, you know, you've said, which is that the people who spend the most time indoors have a similar risk of death as the people who smoke the most cigarettes, but spend a lot of time outdoors which I find really ironic given how many people are being health conscious and staying outside of, out of the sun and, you know, slathering on sunscreen when they are in the sun. And this is confounded by a lot of variables, right? First of all, let's talk about photo aging and photo damage. The sun does damage your skin. The higher the intensity, the longer the duration, the more damage you're going to have. 
in nature, you're supposed to have gradual increases in the dose every day over the course of the spring into the summer. So you build up this resistance to the sun's rays. And then it wanes as the sun goes away in the fall. This is in high latitudes anyway. And, you know, it's not like people from Northern Europe were traveling to Sub-Saharan Africa to live permanently. Now, you know, people with very pale skin can live in very hot places. They really do need to watch their sun exposure. I, I sort of joke with these patients, you know, I ask them like, hey, you know, are you one of those patients who like, if you walk outside in Florida on a hot day in July, you burst into flames? They laugh because, you know, it's practically true for some of them. Those people need to be very careful, but you do need a certain amount of, of just simple sunlight, UVB, full spectrum to do a couple of things. One, it drives your circadian rhythms. So when you live in a dimly lit environment, you not get the same light signal to your brain as if you live in a bright environment. And this drives your production of hormones and neurotransmitters. As we age, those levels decline. So living in a dim environment would arguably be a risk factor for premature aging and death. Frankly, you know, you can get a lot of value out of just staying in sunnier portions of your house, opening the windows, you know, cracking the shades, all these different things. One of the things I ask my patients to do is to download a Luxmeter app on their phone. There's a lot of them out there. If you just put in Luxmeter on in the App Store or App Store or the Play Store, you'll find a bunch because it uses your camera to measure how much visible light's coming into the, the phone. You can actually see how radically different your light measurements are. Anywhere in your house, you know, you can see how dark your bedroom is. You can see how bright your, you know, front porch is in the morning. You can see the difference between, you know, winter sunlight and summer sunlight. You'll see the difference between a cloudy day and a sunny day in different seasons of the year. And it gives you a real appreciation or quantification for this principle of biology that you really, you know, people, I mean, look how much, how much time and money people put into tracking their macros and, you know, buying ketones and supplements and, resistant starches and whatever, all this like fun dietary stuff. They have no idea what light they're being exposed to. So you needed to run your circadian rhythms that determines the synchronicity of your body. That determines a lot about your aging. You need all those systems to be in, in tune. You want to have high levels of, or optimal levels of hormones and neurotransmitters to mitigate aging. Um, and then red and infrared light uh, make melatonin in the skin. So if you don't have enough red, red and infrared light in your, in your body, or I should say on your body or in your eye, you're not going to have normal melatonin levels. And then you need darkness at night in order to really take advantage of all those benefits. So yeah, sun exposure is definitely a healthy habit. You've got to avoid burning though, because that's where most of the photo damage comes from all the premature you know, skin aging. But even if that happens, there's so much we can do with cosmetic dermatology today, You know, chemical peels, acids, uh, shave biopsies, punch biopsies and lots of topical treatments with vitamins, minerals that can really rejuvenate and, and normalize your skin texture and tone. So a lot of what you're talking about does have to do with yoking your, your light environment. You know, you want to normalize your circadian rhythm to be exposed to light at the right time. You don't want to expose your body to the wrong light at the wrong time. So we're living in this world where for a large part of the population, a lot of malillumination, meaning we're not getting the correct light, we're getting the incorrect light. And on top of that, they're at the wrong times. So a lot of us, like we've already alluded to, we wake up under our roofs, we drive in our cars to our job, then we're in our office all day and vice versa till we get home, right. very little full spectrum sunlight. Not only are we getting a very little amount of the proper light, but then we go home, we watch TV before bed, we're on our phones or tablets. So then we're getting the wrong non-native light uh, into our eyes, which is disrupting the circadian rhythm. 
And it's just a total circadian mismatch, which leads to all these upticks in metabolic disorders, obesity, uh, diabetes, cancers, and whatnot. And quite often we turn to food, but I would wonder uh, with the knowledge you know now, especially after learning from uh, Dr. Jack Cruz, is there an order to which you try to optimize one's health? Meaning, do you look at food first? Do you look at the light environment? Do you try to make their EMF as mitigated as possible? So what does that look like for you? Great question. The challenge is that I will give people too much information. They can't act on all of it. So I break it up into bite-sized pieces and I meet with them every week, every couple of weeks. And I like to do, I like to go through the whole protocol balance protocol Enviro in six months with two lab draws. The, each lab draw includes a comprehensive assessment of the patient's diet, really all aspects of what they're eating and how it's coming through in their red blood cells, their serum, their urine. It's a very comprehensive test that I offer. And what that does, it enables us to really optimize everything. And the thing about you know light and matter and all these different factors, right, is that you never know what's going to make the difference for the patient in terms of moving the needle on their illness. And you also begin to appreciate it's never one thing. There's some synergy between what you do. You know, and so for some patients, it's like you'll teach them the right breathing mechanics, and then you get them drinking the right water. And then you, you, know, you diagnose their B6 deficiency properly, and you replete that. And then all of a sudden, they're just sailing along. Other people, it's like you find their massive electromagnetic disaster in their bedroom, and their sleep improves. And then you, you know, get their light environment fixed and all of a sudden they're not, you know, their circadian rhythms are not jacked up. And then you, you know, you, you explain them they need more fiber in their diet so that they can fix their leaky gut, you know, by increasing their short chain fatty acid production from their small bowel bacteria. So you see these patterns where you never know what's going to be mission critical for patients. And this is why I used to just see people by the hour and I, I learned to hate it because you never knew when you were going to deliver the sort of final blow to their illness. And they always were worried about, well, how much more money is this going to take? You know, And so what, I, what I've decided to do is start working with people on retainer which is a far more rewarding model because it allows you to spend the time on the case that you need to spend without worrying about, you know, just billing people for 15 minutes here and 15 minutes there. It's a lot of paperwork, a lot of records keeping, which I like, but it also, you know, you're, you're explaining to them, look, in six months, we're going to cover everything. So long as you put in the time, put in the work and you're going to see improvements. I don't know what they're going to be. I don't know what the magnitude is going to be. You, know, you may be 20% better. You may be 80% better but I'm really gratified by the patients who come in with a really positive attitude and who are willing to do the work and all the homework that I give them. I see wonderful improvements fairly rapidly, but again, I just don't know what it's going to be. I've had patients who buy red lights, particularly in dark places and become obsessed with them. You know, I've had patients, you know, start a supplement protocol and it's just, that was like the only thing that they needed. All these other factors weren't playing that big of a role in their case. It just depends on the unique context of the individual. Gotcha. And I'm sure you're familiar with uh, the, the work and research of Dr. Doug Wallace, considered mm. by many uh, the top mitochondrial researcher in the world. Yeah. And he's gone on record based on the research he's done and by others that aging is predominantly due to mitochondrial dysfunction in that in today's world, about 80% of all chronic diseases are due to mitochondrial dysfunction which should be liberating in the sense that our fate, health and vitality and longevity wise is not tied to our nuclear DNA. 
it's much more tied to the mitochondrial genome, which is much more malleable. We're in much more control of like you're alluding to. It's our environmental sensor, the mitochondria. So fix the environment, optimize the mitochondria, and it should optimize your health. So I'm kind of curious, does the balance protocol speak to the mitochondria specifically um, or directly, or is that anything that you're specifically wanted to target with your clients? Definitely is the short answer, but you have to realize that beneath the mitochondria, there, there's more fundamental levels to biology than mitochondria. They're, very, they're, they're really ultimately very complex structures. What balance protocol does is you look at all the forces external to the patient that could affect the mitochondria. And let's take breathing mechanics as just one example. If you're hyperventilating, you're going to blow off CO2. This is going to clamp down your arteries. It's going to increase your blood pressure. It's going to restrict blood flow around your body. And it's also going to reduce oxygen delivery to your mitochondria. So, you know, just the amount you're breathing per minute can affect oxygen delivery to the mitochondria, which will affect, affect their cellular respiration rate, which will affect the passage of protons and electrons across their membranes, which will affect your energy generation, which will affect how you feel, right? And that's just one thing. So what else goes into them? I mean, at the end of the day, my most powerful intervention, arguably, is the nutritional testing that I do. Because let's say that somebody has like a cripplingly high level of mercury. Well, there is no amount of light therapy that is going to fix that. They need to either get their amalgams out, if that's the source, or they need to stop eating tuna and swordfish. And it may be compounded by other factors. They don't drink enough water. They never sweat. They never get any exercise. They have a B6 deficiency. So their homocysteine is high. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, but it's, it's just a matter of looking through the nutritional panels that I get of, okay, you got to change your diet this way, this way, this way, and this way in order to bring all of your systems back into balance so that you've got the right nutrients to do what your body and its natural intelligence will naturally do when you give it that, which is to heal. And the body's the engine that fixes itself. And it's really only our ignorance that holds it back from that. With balance protocol, you're measuring and you're monitoring, you're quantifying and you're qualifying. And so you identify the problems at the root cause by assaying all the fundamental building blocks of biology, amino acids, fatty acids, carbohydrates, how they're being metabolized, what pathways are deficient, what pathways are replete, and then toxic elements and minerals as well. Gotcha. That makes sense. And let's yeah. circle back to, I believe you were mentioning when you're prescribing or you're telling your patients to utilize light therapy or red light therapy, you give them the dosages. I'm just curious how you go about deciding what the dosage is and the frequency per week and, and how you kind of uh, put together your protocols for red light therapy. So what I'll do is I will take the complaint, try and find some papers on an identical complaint. And then I will look at those papers and see what protocol they use. They're almost always using a high powered laser in a doctor's office, not a panel at somebody's home. So I have to do some dose conversions. I have to figure out what, like, what's the, what's the amount of light that's hitting the skin in the patient's home? How far do they need to hold it from the device? How many minutes do they need to use to get the same dose? And quite frankly, I'm not that confident in how close this approximates the study protocols only because the devices are so different. But there's so much variability between people, right? The density of their skin, the amount of water in their tissues, 
who knows what the right dose is for any person, but that's what I do. And at the end of the day, people need to realize they're living in a house that's not getting any natural sunlight. If they are not using incandescent bulbs, they're using LEDs and CFLs. If they're never going outside to sunbathe, or if they're not hitting a sauna, or if they're not using a red light therapy panel, I can get more red and infrared light on my body in five minutes with my red light therapy panels or yours in like five minutes than they may get on their skin in an entire week. That's an insane deficit, right? And when you think about the fact that our ancestors went from, in the course of a couple of generations, we've gone from spending 98% of our time outside to spending you know, 98% of our time inside. What's the difference in you know, photonic power that our ancestors were getting on their skin, even with minimal exposed, right? I'm assuming you and I are both Northern European descent, right? Clothes are a thing in cold places. Probably five to 10% of your skin might be exposed in, in Northern Europe at any given time of year, especially given like what morals of the day were a hundred years ago where people were very modest, right? Still, that person who's wearing a very, who's covered head to toe in clothing, practically speaking, gets more light than the average person who just sunbathes for an hour on their Saturday or Sunday. So it's really interesting to think about it in that perspective. You, you begin to appreciate, you know, we're eating the same amount of calories, different macros, maybe different micronutrients, different food additives, different times of day, different sources. Maybe it's overbred, maybe it's covered in pesticides, herbicides, artificial fertilizer, whatever. But man, the amount of light we're getting, that has radically declined. And as it has, all these diseases that are linked to light deficiencies have skyrocketed. And if there's one paper that actually puts this in perspective more than any other, it's actually this paper that's in that book I mentioned by Fritz Hall, which earlier that you've got on the way from Amazon, it's this study in mice where they, they injected them with this toxin and then they illuminated them with different types of light. And one of the experimental groups that was exposed to a certain type of light had a higher lethal dose. In other words, they could tolerate more of the toxin than the other mouse, which implies that the toxins are being exposed to, whether it's glyphosate or endotoxin or aluminum or mercury, right? Our tolerance for those is actually driven by the light that we're living under. All this just compounds to really give you an appreciation for how important it is that people actually mitigate their light environment create a healthy naturalistic lighting environment for themselves. And then on top of that, have some source of red and infrared light in their lives, whether that's the sun, whether that's a panel. I know that for most pale people in North America, I'm telling them they need a panel because they may have an office job. They may not be able to get out during the middle of the day. The list goes on, but they just, they need a stable source of light they can rely on. That's also not going to burn them. But that's what I always tell people that, Red light therapy products would not be necessary if we weren't so deficient in sun exposure, especially morning and evening, which contains mostly red and near infrared light. But that's the only reason why they're around is because we're so deficient, just like uh, the supplement industry is so massive because we're so deficient or people think they are. They, people take supplements. They don't even check their blood. We're so deficient in, in light, like you've alluded to beautifully, that that's the reason why these products are even on the market and people buy them. And that's also why they work because they fix that deficiency. You know, relative, like you're saying, to, to sun exposure for people with pale skin, more likely to get sunburns, 
this is just as a hypothesis I kind of have, kind of like the weekend warrior where you're, you're in the office from Monday through Friday, and then you're hitting that softball field Saturday, you swing the bat, you hit your sprints to the first base, and, and your Achilles heel goes, or your Achilles tendon goes. Could that be true for sun exposure? We're in the office, let's say Monday through Friday, and we're just, our body's quenching sun. We're going to the beach or we're going outside or we're going for a walk and we get a little overzealous with our sun exposure. So it's easier to burn because we're not exposing our bodies, let's say five out of seven days. So we almost get this weekend warrior effect with sun exposure only on the weekends. That substantiates what your <clears throat> hypothesis states is that when you look at the data on melanoma, right? How do we study melanoma? Well, we look at different people and how they live and how much melanoma they get and whether or not they die, whether or not they survive, whether or not they have a recurrence, right? And one of the paradoxes of melanoma is that if the sun causes melanoma, then spoons make people fat because that's about how simple that thinking is. It's not untrue, but if your, if your idea of weight loss is to throw all your spoons out, you're probably not going to succeed because there's a lot of things you can fit onto a fork that will kill you just as surely as things you can fit onto a spoon. At the same time, like spoons can be used for wholesome, healthy foods. So why throw them out? The sun is the same way. When you look at the data on melanoma, the best way to get melanoma is to do exactly what you proposed. Be an office worker and then a weekend warrior, you know, get out there at noon on Saturday, drink a couple beers, fall asleep in the sun, get horrifically burned, and then go inside and don't go back out until you've completely molted like, you know, a lobster in the summer. The best way to avoid melanoma is actually to be an outdoor worker. They don't have an increased risk of melanoma relative to the general public, which researchers were very surprised to find. They thought, oh my gosh, these linemen, you know, they're out there laying, you know, line on the telephone poles high in the air above the treetops with zero shade year after year, day after day, month after month. It's not to say that they don't get photo damage. They absolutely do. But you also have to remember that profession tends to attract people who are not the most health conscious. They're not going to, you know, their local salad joint and crushing a large salad with lots of colorful fruits and vegetables, which are really nature's antidote to sunlight, not to mention, you know, nuts and seeds. You know, they might like have a chili cheese dog and a Slurpee for lunch and call it good. That's not exactly a healthy balanced diet. You expect those people to be sicker than normal. But regardless, they have a non-increased rate of melanoma relative to the general public. And the people who have an increased rate of melanoma are fair-skinned. They get burned a lot. They get a bunch of photo damage. And you know that seems to be the, the trigger for their melanoma. And it goes even deeper than that. I mean, if you look at some of the, one of the papers that I've, I've reviewed a long time ago, but I looked at it recently again, the more sun you get, even if you've got melanoma or have had a melanoma, the longer you're likely to survive. And that's because of these complex relationships that sunlight has with our circadian rhythms and with vitamin D production. So, you know, you really have to be mindful of all these factors. And that's why, you know, people who have a simplistic mindset about their health are kind of doomed to failure. They need to take a comprehensive view of their health. They need to put some time into the education. And that's why balance protocol and viral is 50 hours. People should really spend that much time learning the nuts and bolts of you know natural and holistic medicine, which is what it's really offering before they get into any of the kind of gimmicky stuff, you know, like ketones and, or even just fad diets, you know, keto or, or paleo or carnivore or whatever. Cause I get people in my practice who have pretty severe disease or nutritional deficiencies that are the logical result of following those diets for extremely long periods of time. 
Well, with, with that in mind, I was going to ask you this a little later, but let's ask it now. Do you utilize some sort of like fasting protocol or intermittent fasting or fast mimicking diet with certain patients to optimize you know, various health aspects? Definitely. And there's a ton of factors that will modify what I recommend as far as meal timing and size. Some of it comes down to how fast they're metabolizing sugar. Some of it comes down to how well they're able to transform proteins. Some of it comes down to how much they're able to just tolerate. Some people can't stand more than a couple hundred calories at a time, which is nothing. And they need to eat more times a day in order to make up for that unless they're going to go into, or otherwise they'll go into a calorie deficit and they may, those people are often actually very frail. And they've lost a lot of weight and they're worried about actually, I've actually had some pretty crit- like pretty severely ill patients who I was worried were not going to make it, who needed more frequent meal timings for that reason. So yeah, there's tons of caveats, right? But for average Joe, healthy people, I'll say two to three meals a day, depending on your exercise level. And then an occasional you know, 24 hour or 12 hour fast to take advantage of the benefits of uh, fasting and autophagy. And circling back to kind of sun exposure and, and skin health, there's a concept in, in photobiomodulation, you know, preconditioning. You can precondition your brain before a cognitively intensive task, whether, whether right. it's, you know, you're taking a test or you're going to give an interview to Dr. Leland Stillman. No, <laughs> but then you have the preconditioning of muscles prior to exercise. So you can, you know, increase your aerobic capacity or your, or your strength. And then there's preconditioning your skin prior to sun exposure. So are any of those preconditioning tactics, and by the way, all those ways you can precondition with photobiomodulation or or red light therapy are backed by science. But do you, Dr. Stillman, do you utilize any of those preconditioning tactics with yourself or your patients? Yeah, absolutely. I won't use it for sun exposure. Well, in the sense that like it doesn't really fit in people's lifestyles very well using a red or infrared light before they go out and get some sun. It could, it's conceivable. I'll be in a position sometime where someone can stand very little sun exposure. And I'll say, Hey, you know, if you're burning easily, then here's what I want you to do. Use do a 20 minute protocol with a large panel, red infrared light panel, and then go outside for five minutes and get your UV dose. But for the most part, what I see is that I'm, I'm talking to people who can't stand intense noonday UV sun. And I want them to get more sunlight and more bright light in their eye. And what I'll tell them to do is, okay, you got to go outside earlier in the day when the UV light is weaker. And that's also when, you know, at extremes of that, of that uh, window, you know, just after dawn, just before dusk, that window varies a lot, right? You want them to get outside for their sun exposure because there's still bright light, but there's a higher proportion of red and infrared light. So it's going to be more healing and nourishing to the skin and not as intensive an insult as the UV. So that's how I use it. And then if I have a patient who's going to undergo a surgery or a procedure or if he's got some kind of dermatological issue that they may be going under going a treatment for, for example, like a chemical peel um, or a cosmetic surgery or like a filler or anything like that, an injectable, I'll, I'll recommend that they use the red light therapy before that in order to prepare their body for that insult, reduce the amount of inflammation, reduce the amount of, of scarring. The caveat to that being that some dermatological procedures like lifts will actually rely on the body's inflammatory response, creating more collagen. And so arguably you shouldn't use red light therapy in those cases, but there's no data on that yet. So it's kind of, a, it's a new area of science. Yep. And you mentioned uh, using infrared saunas earlier. And I get this question all the time, like people want to be using their, their red light therapy panels inside of the sauna. So I think they want to kill two birds with one stone, but of course, you know, the devices are made for the high heat and all that. 
and a lot of the the saunas that are out there now, they do offer some sort of light therapy, some phototherapy, whether it's red or yellow or green or whatever. Um, but I haven't really seen any saunas that have enough light power or a high enough light irradiance to give the same therapeutic dosage as, as let's say, the LED panels like BioLight or, or otherwise. But regardless, when it comes to utilizing infrared sauna and then also a cold thermogenesis, what types of patients or clients are those most beneficial for? Do you yeah. also stack any of those? Do you stack cold Totally, with yeah. infrared, Absolutely. with yeah. light, with yeah. fasting or, or stuff like that? So you got to remember there's a lot of different reasons to use any of these things, right? Like I could tell a patient who's got a high toxic metal load or toxin load to use sauna, but I might not recommend that if they have a mercury or a potassium deficiency, because I could make that worse because they're going to lose some of that in their sweat. If they were to, I'd be like, look, you got to drink a solution of potassium, magnesium before you get in the sauna to make up for that deficit. Do I want them to be using all these frequencies? Yes, because they're all present in nature. You know, we aren't just supposed to, and people kind of don't, don't get that. Like in an age when we used a lot of sauna, we also just sat in a lot of the, in front of the fire a lot. And the sauna was kind of an accessory. The fire was the main source of warmth and heat and light. That's an important distinction, right? I don't think that sauna is an in, a substitute for red, red light or red light therapy. And it's frankly a lot more convenient. Not to mention that you can pack way more light into a panel than you can into a sauna for the same amount of money. You're, you're just not getting the same dose. And you also don't have the same uh, necessarily duration of, um, of lifespan for the sauna. Now that depends on the model, depends on maintenance, depends on construction, all these other things. So, you know, it's, it's kind of a toss up, but man, there's such a good investment, these panels, because they make such a difference in people's lives. And there's such necessary frequencies that people are missing. How I would stack them depends. And I never get into using this kind of thing until I've got some labs back, unless I've got like a clear and present danger. Like I know they were exposed to mold or they happen to be a tuna swordfish enthusiast. And even then I'll try and figure out, okay, do I need to also supplement them with, you know, something like sea salt or trace elements of some kind or whatever. But you need the lab data back because if you if you try and cold if you do cold exposure, recommend cold exposure to somebody whose metabolism is broken, particularly in certain ways, you're not going to give them results, and you may actually make them worse because you'll increase or worsen their nutritional imbalances and deficiencies. The same can be true of sauna; it can be way too much for some people to stand, and that's why just about anybody who saunas for long enough will feel worse. It is a stress on the body; you got to be able to mount a response to it. And that requires resources, very specific resources, right? You need to be able to make enough dopamine and norepinephrine in order to increase your cardiac um, output. You need to be able to then have, you got to have enough tyrosine in order to do that. You got to have all the minerals on board in order to make that conversion. You got to have some vitamin C in order to make that conversion. I mean, all these different variables are very important. So I want all that data before I stack those things. But then, yeah, absolutely. We can use all of that for different therapeutic purposes, and put them together to get even better outcomes. And yeah, the, the question I get a lot is, which one should I invest in, the infrared sauna or red light therapy? And they're apples and oranges because most infrared saunas are predominantly mid and far infrared, whereas red light therapy is red and near infrared. So at least based on what I've read in the research, mid and far infrared does not stimulate the mitochondria, whereas near infrared and red does. However, since mid and far infrared are longer wavelengths, penetrate deeper, that's where you get the detox, that's where you get the cardiovascular benefits, growth hormone production, stem cell production, heat shock protein production, 
So there are two completely different benefits. And if you can, you should be utilizing both of them uh, consistently. To your point, though, you want to know what's going on at a deeper level before you start being Dr. Stillman, start assigning uh, the infrared sauna or the red light or fasting or this, that, or the other. But just for the general population, those who are wondering which one to invest in, they're, they're completely different and they're both extremely beneficial to your uh, health and longevity. But I would start with a panel, gotcha. a red light therapy panel, red and infrared light therapy panel. Because I assume you've got far, did you say you got far near and red light therapy in these panels? Uh, red and near infrared. I was saying that the saunas, infrared saunas far. typically yeah. have predominantly mid and far, very little near, if any, meaning they're just not going to stimulate the mitochondria like red light therapy will. Right. Right. But I want to circle back to water because that's kind of a little side passion of mine. And especially after talking with Tracy Dews the other month, you say that you help your clients structure water. Remineralize. So what we do with this, um, first of all, the, the, the water structuring device is proprietary for Beck. It's in his Enviro protocol. He's the only person I know who's actually substantiated it by using what's called a gas diffusion visualization chromatography camera to actually see how water is structured by things, which totally blew my mind. Every Tom, Dick, and Harry out there who's got a kooky idea about water is trying to sell you a water structuring device. And this is the only one I've ever actually put money into. And it turns out that the do-it-yourself version that he goes over in the course is not very expensive compared to a lot of the, the units that people are falling for and being sold by people who haven't done this kind of homework or who have all kinds of wacky ideas about how water is actually structured. Water structuring is one of the things I save for later with my patients because it, it it doesn't have the same impact that other interventions that we do will have. It's also a little bit less convenient than some of the other stuff I focus on with water quality, but it is relevant. And the people who want to really put all the finishing touches on, you know, kind of tighten down all the nuts and bolts and really like get everything squared away. It's one of the things to do when it comes to remineralizing water that depends on what the patient's unique context is. So you can make different mineral waters yourself using different um, techniques using different salts of minerals. But what I use depends upon the patient's nutritional status. What's their red blood cell potassium level? What's their red blood cell magnesium level? What's their copper, zinc? Do they need lithium? All of that depends. So that's how I, I tailor my mineralization protocols. Do you ever utilize a quinton water? Or are you familiar with that? Yeah. So I've had a couple of patients come to me with quinton water and they really enjoy it and they really get a lot out of it. I don't have a place for it in my protocol but it's just another source of trace elements. And if you're deficient in those, you'll feel a lot better when you're on it. The funny thing about that is that for every person who comes to me, who's demineralized, I have other people coming to me who are over mineralized and you may be demineralized in your total body, but you're not able to remineralize physiologically. So your total body levels or your blood levels of minerals are high. Those people are very sick because those minerals are running around creating oxidative stress and doing a lot of damage to the body, unfortunately, because they're not being controlled properly by your, your, your normal healthy physiology. So those people need to do something to get those minerals under control, which we have a lot of different protocols and approaches for with balance protocol, but you got to drive those down or get them normalized before you bring them back up. And some people just can't tolerate minerals on an empty stomach. Uh, and that you got to be careful with them. You may want to use something like a whole food, um, but there, then it's, it gets kind of tough because it's, it's hard to, um, those are kind of powerful and, and tough to handle as well. But yeah, yeah, I, I tailor all the mineralization protocols based on their diet and also what's going into their water. 
before we started recording, we were talking about different red light therapy products and how some have a very high EMF emission. My company, BioLite, at least to this point, is the only company that's taken light flicker into consideration. But you're telling me about a strategy of how people can test the EMF emission that's coming from various devices. Could you please tell us about that? And then secondly, for your patients, how do you tell them to find a red light therapy device? Like, What is your um, suggestion? So when it comes down to red light therapy devices and EMF, people need to realize that anything they plug into an electrical socket can create an electromagnetic field that can affect their health. So they need to be aware of that. And there's a bunch of different ways you can measure this. It's all covered in balanced protocol and viro. And here's the thing. It can be a problem with the device and it can be a problem with the wiring in the house. You got to figure out which it is. The easy way to do that is just have a bunch of devices, plug each one of them in, test all of them. If they all have the same problem, that may be a wiring issue. You can change that, you know, because let's say that you're plugging it into a power strip. Well, it may be something else it's interacting with on the power strip. You unplug that and all of a sudden the field goes away. So it's very finicky. You've got to test. Otherwise, you have no idea what you're dealing with. So when I see people saying, oh, our light produces no EMF, it's like, well, it produced no EMF in the context that you tested it. And that's great. But Joe Schmo, who's got a wiring error in his house, who plugs it in and starts to get a headache isn't getting a headache from the red and infrared light. Maybe he's getting it from the EMF field that it's putting off. So that's one reason why I really stress the EMF testing with my patients. It's a lot less easy to do than a lot of the other stuff I do with them, which is why it comes later in the protocol, part of why it does. But it's so important to do. So anyway, if it's a problem with the device, it may be wired in such a way that it throws off an EMF field, which could be of concern. And that's why it's nice to have people like you who are paying attention to this and trying to engineer your devices in a way where it will, that will be minimized. The, the simple fact is that any device plugged into an outlet, if the device is wrongly wired or if it's plugged in around the wrong stuff, can put off a big field. <clears throat> so that's a problem that any manufacturer would have to deal with. But again, there's a lot you can do in order to mitigate that and reduce your device's propensity to do that. Gotcha. And so personally, what is your health and wellness regimen like either on a daily or weekly basis? What kind of stuff do you throw in there just to keep yourself, um, your health optimized? What a big question. Um, I practice Buteco breathing. I get outside multiple times a day to earth in my earthing shoes. I get sun exposure prudently a couple times during the day, take walks during the day, have lots of natural light in my house, office. I eat a varied and diverse diet with lots of different ingredients. I rotate things constantly through. I have a very low EMF house, low EMF environment, and I have pretty much an impeccable light environment when it comes to the amount of blue and green light that I'm dealing with. That's the nuts and bolts, but it's, just, it's the details of how you get there that really matter. Kind of to piggyback on that, but maybe you have a different answer. If there's a couple of things that uh, people could do today or tomorrow to move the needle the most for their health and wellness and longevity, what would you tell people uh, to look at, whether it's in their environment or just a daily habit? They need to embrace Buteco breathing. I've, I have yet to find a patient who didn't improve with that technique. And a lot of people get worse with things like Wim Hof or holotropic breath work. It's because they really need Buteco breathing. Buteco? Yeah. B-U-T 
E-Y-K-O, Russian physician in the Cold War who innovated a really great breathwork protocol. What's the general uh, uh, format of that? Briefing? The gist of it is that people are, are chronically hyperventilating beneath their notice due to a variety of factors in their posture, their you know, their lack of awareness of over how they're breathing, medical problems like asthma, rhinitis, things like that, deviated septums. Um, and this creates unhealthy breathing patterns and then create disease within not only the airway, but within the body. So that's number one. Number two is create some kind of light therapy protocol, because if you're not, if you're just, if you're just living the life of the average person exposed to blue and green light at night, not getting any red or infrared during the day, never getting enough sunlight to normalize your vitamin D. I mean, you are just leaving so much money on the table in terms of your health. It's crazy. You know, for $10, you can buy, maybe not 10, 20, 50, depends on the size of your house, right? You can buy all the light bulbs you need to have safe, healthy lighting at home. And people who want more on my thoughts on that can go to my blog. My blog on my website has got a blog post called Blue Light Blocking Solutions because I give you all my product recommendations there and walk, and walk people through why. And then um, investing in some kind of light therapy device. Is it a red, is it a, you know, red light therapy panel? Is it a sauna? There's so many factors that to take into account. I really, well, I'll really walk my patients through the health benefits of each one and make a recommendation that's tailored to them when they work with me one-on-one but getting something to get these frequencies of, of light back into your life when our modern world has chronically deprived us of them on a daily basis, not weekly, not every other week, not at the health club when you happen to go, but I mean, every single day, five to 20 minutes of some kind of light therapy. And then people have got to get off of this garbage fluoridated water. That's, you know, what our municipal water systems are passing, you know, passing through their, their pipes because there's just so much stuff in there that we don't even know what it's doing to people. And I think the fluoride is a real problem the more I read about it. And just by installing a reverse osmosis filter under your sink, you get rid of that problem right away. Do you combine uh, when you do red light therapy sessions yourself or light therapy sessions, do you combine the breathing or do you do them separately? Sure. You can do that. But I mean, ultimately the Buteco breathing, the whole goal is to optimize your breathing uh, mechanics overall you can okay. supercharge that if you're using a red light therapy device. Cause it, my theory is that it can change oxygen binding in your blood, but I don't have any, I haven't yet found data to substantiate that. Gotcha. So we got optimize your light environment, breathing, optimize mm-hmm. your water yep. and take it from there. Well, Dr. Stillman, I really appreciate your time. Uh, you're a wealth of knowledge. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure we could talk for hours about, you know, different health, wellness, biohack and longevity tactics. So I appreciate your time. Um, where can people learn more about you, read more about you or potentially do a consultation with you? So people can learn more about me on my website, which is stillmanmd.com. Amazon, Mary D as in David or Amazon medical D as in doctor. You can sign up for my newsletter, which comes out monthly. Uh, and then you can uh, apply for a consultation on my website as well. The newsletter is, you know, my uncensored opinion, which is courses people can, I think, appreciate. Um, I don't put out on my, my conventional social media channels. Um, and then the consultations, um, you know, I, I get, I give people a complimentary uh, phone call to discuss their case and see if I'm a good fit for them. Amazing. Uh, when can we expect a book with all the knowledge that you have inside that brain? So I'm currently working on the book, the working title. Um, I'm actually going to keep under wraps for now because I don't want anyone to scoop it. But uh, the plan is to have a working um, 
draft in about six months. That's amazing. I was kind of kidding, but I'm super excited to know you're actually writing a book. Yep. Uh, it's much needed and, I, and I'll be the first one to buy it. This is Dr. Mike Belkowski with Dr. Leland Stillman signing off another episode of the Red Light Report. You guys have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Red Light Report. If you like what you heard today, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes and other podcast platforms to help spread the word so other people can learn about the many health, wellness, and longevity benefits of red light therapy. If you're looking for more educational content, check out our Instagram page at biolight.shop and our YouTube channel, Biolite. I'm Dr. Mike Belkowski, and I'll see you on the next episode.